Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devinder Hardwire. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show. What we're going to do here on today's podcast is we're going to have a very brief what we've been watching segment and then move on into a slash film court segment, which is the segment whereby we adjudicate uh, a film-related dilemma. You can always email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And then finally conclude with an in-depth review of Velvet Buzzsaw, the new Dan Gilroy movie that's out on Netflix right now, April Wolf. Film critic is going to join us for that review of Velvet Buzzsaw. And then if that's not enough slash filmcast goodness for you, we're going to follow it up with uh, an After Dark episode about Burning, uh, the thriller, question mark, drama, question mark, uh, starring Steve Yoon. Uh, and also Dan Gvozdin is going to join us for that part of uh, of the episode. So lots to, to get to on this week's episode of the podcast. Lots in store for you. Uh, stay tuned. You can find more episodes at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. But let's get to what we've been watching. Devendra Hardwar, what have you been watching this week? I've been checking out uh, Russian Doll, the new show on Netflix uh, starring Natasha Leone and co-created by Natasha Leone, Amy Poehler, and Leslie Headland. And you may, if you saw Bachelorette, I think back in 2013 or so, like uh, she directed that movie and wrote that. So uh, she's been somebody I've been keeping an eye on for a while, and I know she's been doing TV this show is like, it's kind of tough to describe. I will say it is Groundhog Day-esque, and it stars Natasha Leone, and the entire thing is about her trying to determine why this crazy thing is happening to her uh, on a drunken night. Uh, I think what really sells the show, though, is uh, is basically Natasha Leone being, you know, a badass, being irreverent, being hilarious. Uh, I think this movie, this show works as a great comedy but also, like, as it goes on, I'm about two episodes away from the end. It's only eight episodes. Um, you know, it's trying to dive into deeper and more meaningful stuff. Uh, but mostly, I'm struck by how much fun the show is to watch. Um, we started it, and before I knew it, we were watching, um, you know, half the season. It's only four, you know, um, it's four half an hour episodes. It goes by really quickly because it's just a movie length. Uh, but it, uh, I think it's eight episodes, bingeable. actually. Yeah, yeah. We saw, I saw four. Oh, I see. So I saw four half hour episodes. Got it. Um, And yeah, you just blow through that real quick. Uh, So yeah, it's an easy watch. It's a ton of fun. If you've, you know, appreciated Natasha Leone, it's definitely worth watching. But I also think it's a really fun mix up of the Groundhog Day formula. And also it's a, to me, it's a real reminder of like how, how lasting that concept is. Like we've just seen it redone so many times. And I think it's just going to continue indefinitely, which kind of makes sense. Um, but it's a great conceit. And I think, the, you know, the show is just a ton of fun. But what did you think, Dave? So I saw the first two episodes of Russian Doll. I thought the first episode was great. Uh, I, I thought it's, like you said, it, it is a uh, a concept that has stood the test of time. There's been many movies like it in the past. Um, I'm thinking of, obviously, Groundhog Day. 1201 with Jonathan Silverman. There's another movie I'm going to mention what? later on. That, that, that yeah, sure. Kind of okay. Um, yeah. And uh, I thought the first episode was really enjoyable. And then the second episode really kind of almost – like I didn't get past the second episode because I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to keep watching this. Because uh, when you have a Groundhog Day style show or movie or whatever, uh, there's always a moment when uh, the protagonist says, am, am I crazy? Um, um, what's going on with me here? You know, and they just, they just try to figure out like, uh, like what is actually happening? What are the what are the physics and mechanics of what's actually happening? And in a movie, that part of the movie is like, 
you know, f- 10 minutes, right? And this show stretched that out into like half an hour where the character's just like, what's going on? And I just like, the, the episode two felt like it did not advance the plot whatsoever. Right. And I'm just like, I, I'm, I don't know if I can deal with the entire series being like this. But you've made it to episode four. It's it's not, it's you not all like that. Going. You suggest I keep I going. I will say this year, it kind of makes sense why she's going on this huge exploration of like why this whole thing is happening. Because she's also like, you know, she she's a k- kind of a heavy drinker. She takes all sorts of drugs. Like conceivably, it could be anything in her system that's kind of making this happen psychologically. So it's like, you know, it's right. a scientific method. Dave. And she explores all, all those out. possibilities exactly. in episode two, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but speaking of movies like this, you know, I, I had another, I, I watched another really uh, weird time bending movie this past week uh, that, I, that also was a bit rough in my opinion. Uh, and it was, uh, have you guys heard of this movie called Plus One? I, I no. wrote this uh, – I, I do this other podcast about writing and the creative process with uh, C. Robert Cargill. It's called Write Along at writealongpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And uh, uh, the question that we we came we discussed this week was how do you make a low-budget movie that takes place in one location that's like just a few characters, right? Like you can't afford that many actors. You can't afford that many locations. Like what, what do you do? And uh, his suggestion, which I thought was very smart, was – you basically make a film that has a super high concept, sci-fi premise, big idea kind of thing. And that way, the special effect is happening in the audience's head, right? That like the audience is being like, oh, we're not watching people like in a, in a, in a shack. Uh, behind the filmmaker's house, we're watching two people have this interaction in space, you know, or whatever, whatever it is, right? Like that, that you, you have something so high concept that like the audience is doing work to build the world for you. Uh, and it also works, you know, it doesn't have to be sci-fi too. You know, if you think of a movie like uh, Reservoir Dogs, it's mm-hmm. basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, there's this grand action heist thing that all happens in your imagination. That's right. Because yeah. All the characters are in this, you know, very cheap <laughs> one location, but they talk about what just happened out there in the crazy heist. Great example. Uh, an- another example we brought up was the one I love, which is the Mark Duplass, Elizabeth Moss uh, mm. film directed by Charlie McDowell. You know, it's the so vast good. majority of it is just those two actors. Love that and movie. Uh, there is like a very interesting sci-fi premise to it that kind of uh, – yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It allows those two actors to kind of strut their stuff. Um, anyway, so another movie I watched was Plus One, this movie that Cargill recommended. I did not <laughs> like that movie, but I liked the concept of it, which is that a, a temporal event makes it so that these characters are transported back 15 minutes ago, right? So that you're looking at – you see yourself from 15 minutes ago, right? And then the movie explores like what would happen if you encountered – I have to listen to this podcast 15 minutes of, of us talking about stuff I just said. I know. It would be uh. horrifying. Um, and in fact, it is <laughs> it is horrifying in the movie. Like, it, it has a very bleak view on human nature. Um, but the movie is pretty rough. It kind of is uh, at its edges, like – or not even at its edges. It's, it's like a fairly misogynist movie from my perspective. Like, uh, it, it, like it objectifies women in a pretty intense way and – uh, and then it's all beyond that. It's by the guy who directed like Last House on the Left, the new one. Do you guys ever see that movie? Um, that yeah. that uh, horror thriller is pretty pretty brutal movie. Um, similarly, there's some brutality in this movie as well. But it's it was just crazy because I I that's a movie that 
I love that kind of movie, right? Like Triangle, right? Movies or time crimes, movies that mm-hmm. play with time and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I'd never heard of this movie. Um, but if that sounds remotely interesting to you, I can't vouch for the movie, but it is a cool concept. And the movie is called Plus One. It's directed by Dennis Iliadis, and uh, you can find that on a video on demand platform. So uh, that's another like kind of time bending movie I, I happened to watch this week, as the same week I watched Russian Doll. Uh, but Devendra, overall, it sounds like you're having a good time. You're gonna you're gonna get it all the way to the end of Russian Doll. Yes? Oh, it's a blast! Like I've talked to people who just basically watched the entire thing in one night because it's what it's effectively like what, four, four hours. hours. Yeah, it's like four yeah. hours. Yeah, it's easy, so. easy to do. It's so much fun, and uh, yeah, I would say don't read reviews. Don't don't go read anything about it. Just kind of go experience it right now. Very cool. Uh, that's Russian Doll. It's on Netflix right now. Devendra, anything else you've been watching? Yeah, quick shout out to Steven Universe. I uh, just finished season five. Um, I raced to catch up everything. This is the Cartoon Network show by Rebecca Sugar about a boy named Steven and uh, these superpowered uh, aliens that he kind of teams up with to save the world on a daily basis. It's a really fun show. I've talked about it before. Um, it's so much fun, such a blast. And this is also a show with like a deep mythology, similar to like Avatar The Last Airbender or something. And this season, they kind of go all in on it. Uh, it kind of goes cosmic. Uh, I just want to say, if you've started Steven Universe and kind of fell off, it is definitely worth picking it back up. Um, it's a series that's kind of, there's so many like anime references in here too. And I kind of love when an American show ends up doing that because I'm of the generation that grew up watching, you know, major anime movies. And I love seeing these creators who kind of had that same experience kind of applied to their own art as well. Uh, yeah. in season five, like we're getting some Akira here. We're getting some like crazy Voltron action from Steven universe. Um, it's a ton of fun. Um, and also like, I just love the message of the show. It's always been about inclusivity and good winning over evil. And this is definitely a show where, you know, let's just say a lot of the villains end up becoming, friends in some ways or allies and i think that's a really important message for today so really dig that check it all out it's on demand if you have a cartoon network i don't think it's um i think hulu has the first four seasons right now uh so you'd have to catch up in season five some other way but yeah you can watch it on hulu up until season five all right that's steven universe and it's available on demand right now and that is the end of our very short what we've been watching segment this week uh we got a lot more stuff to get to so let's get to our next segment the Slash Film Court. Slash Film The Slash Film Court is the quasi-regular question mark. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a, it's been a while. while since the last Slash Film Court. Uh, but it is First the, of 2019 for sure. The, the extremely irregular segment whereby we adjudicate your movie-related dilemmas. Of course, you can always write into us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And this week's Slash Film Court dilemma comes in from Maddie Grohl from Boston. My old stomping grounds. Uh, Maddie writes in... Uh, uh, my girlfriend and I recently had a debate about movie going that I'd love your opinions on. Both she and I have AMC A-list subscriptions, so we go on movie dates to AMC fairly regularly. The plus side is that AMC made movies really cheap. The downside is we have to sit through the 20-plus minutes of commercials that play in AMC theaters. Add that to getting to the theater early to get a decent seat. We end up splitting in the theater, uh, sitting in the theater for two and a half hours. 
Like Jeff, I'm also spoiler and marketing averse, though not quite to his extent. Recently, however, our local AMC in Boston upgraded to reserve seating so that we are now able to book our seats in advance and not worry about getting to the theater early. I also reasoned that if we show up 20 minutes after the scheduled showtime, we can get to our seats right as the movie starts. So last week, we did just that. It worked beautifully. We walked in right as the Universal logo popped up, and the movie started as if it was playing just for us. Finally, I was able to get the experience uh, of the unsullied lifestyle in all its glory. But it was too good to be true. After the movie, my girlfriend told me that she felt awkward about getting to the theater right as the movie was starting. She thought it was disruptive to the fairly full theater because we had to brush past people who were already seated. And since it's winter in Boston, we had to fidget with our coats, hats, etc. as we sat down, surely making noise during the opening logos. I argued that the film hadn't really started yet, so it was fine, but she was unconvinced. We compromised, and the next time we'd show up 10 minutes after the scheduled showtime, thus kissing the unsullied lifestyle goodbye. So what do you think... Is it okay to enter a movie right as the movie starts in order to avoid the trailer uh, trailers, or is that too disruptive to the people who did show up early and have been comfortably seated for 20-plus minutes? Thanks for the consideration. That comes in from Matty Grohl from Boston. Yeah. Matty. Matty. Sorry. Matty. Matty. Apologies. Marty. He even gave you a pronunciation. He gave me yeah, a pronunciation. Yeah. I blew right past it. That's, Come on. That's completely Marty. my bad. Uh, I love this question, though, because it is – I think it's a very relevant one. Uh, you know, the Alamo Draft House. The whole reason you cannot even enter a screening once a once a movie you know screening starts is because they don't want people to be disrupted, which is kind of insane, by the way, because they start that timer when the trailers start. So it's just it's a bit much. Uh, well, let, let me just before yeah. you, before you uh, yeah. you uh, rule on this matter, Devendra. Um, I I do have to say, uh, first of all, two two things. Number one, Alamo Drafthouse, one of my favorite places in the whole world. Like love. Uh, I've been there three or four times. I've enjoyed every single one of my experiences there. Okay. Number two, an equally related thing to that is that uh, I think it's pretty rich for a place to emphasize uh, no using cell phones, show up before the trailer, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then have people dropping checks like two thirds of the way through the movie. We've made this point before, but I think the servers are more disruptive than people coming in early for sure. For sure. Agree. Here's what I don't understand about Mahi's problem he specifically says he went to an AMC theater. The AMC theater has a bumper between the end of the trailers and mm. the beginning of the movie. I often will stand outside the movie theater, uh, <laughs> outside the, the, the actual, you know, that, that what we call screen. the cool kids line. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Awkwardly standing. It's great too. When it's, uh, it's something like the Lego movie two, you know, uh-huh. or, uh, you know, a, a kid's movie. Yeah. I'm not a creep. Uh, not a creep. Yeah. I'm uh, by myself <laughs> on a 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. My hands are out of my pockets. I'm just standing here <laughs> in front cool. of the entrance. Uh, <laughs> nothing weird about it. <laughs> um, waiting for the movie to actually start. No, but uh, you can you can time your entrance. Yes. And yes. and you actually get a wonderful audio cue when it's like, and then the popcorn guy shows up. And, you know, we got, we're got we doing the AMC, like, you know, now it's time for the thing brought to you by Pepsi and there's bubbling Pepsi and all this. That <laughs> is the perfect moment to take your seat. And one yeah. I often take advantage of, cause that lasts a good 45 seconds, pr- plenty of time, especially if you go in early and scope your seat out, you know where you're headed. It's uh it's a, it's, it's a, it's an opportunity. It doesn't really answer his question, but it, it really should be the preferred it's, 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 I, strategy. I, I feel the need yeah. to interject after, what Jeff just said. Two things, Jeff. Number one, 
I think it's hilarious that you said Pepsi because literally every one of these thousands of times I've seen it, it's been Coke. I specifically uh, didn't say the thing that they do, but whatever. <laughs> so uh, clearly the branding worked on you. Um, and then the second thing is I wouldn't necessarily take Jeff's experience as the norm of how you should handle this kind of situation. Um, now, that being said, it sounds like this guy right. is very much in your court with the unsullied lifestyle, right? You got to explain that. What, what, what do you mean? Yeah. What do you well, mean that you don't take me, mine as the – what are you talking about? <laughs> um, standing outside the theater – you know, that's like pretty intense, Jeff. I mean I just usually go in I'm and don't look. I'm surprised you're not doing this, Dave. You're, aren't you like half unsullied? Yeah, like yeah. I, I, I usually point? just – I go into the theater and I just don't look, right? I just don't look at the screen. <laughs> you don't look at the giant uh, flashing screen. No, I, I look at the side. I, I specifically – I pick a point <laughs> on the side of the theater in my periphery. <laughs> Right, and I just look at the I side of the. I think this is weirder. I think this is stranger. Stands, he just stares at the person sitting next to him. <laughs> <laughs> on the side, no, no, no like, like at the edge I'm of the screen, guys. Not like next to me. Don't be stare uh, intensely at the ear of the stranger sitting uh, adjacent to yeah, you. Yeah, again, let's just say you're both weird. How yeah, about that? That's that's fine. <laughs> okay, so uh, well, let's say so quickly. Yeah, Monty, Monty. I, I I do want to say. I love this letter because it shows how considerate he and his girlfriend are being yes. because nobody in the theater even thinks about this. Um, but I, I think the judgment really comes down based on what kind of seats are in these theaters. If this is a nicer AMC uh, with like the recliner seats and um, you know a nice amount of spacing between the front of the seat and the seat in front of you, like so there's actually an aisle to walk through. It's like it doesn't bother me at all. I think it's totally fine to like come in, even if if the movie has started. That's to me, it's fine. I'm sure other people have other judgments. If it's an older style theater where you have to literally have the entire row get up for you to get in, that's a bigger problem, right? I think that's annoying. I yeah, in, those, I, in that situation, I often will judge my my strategic uh, approach, movie to movie, based on the the juxtaposition of the of the seats. My chosen seat and the level of patronage of that showing so if it's a sold out show i will take my seat early and and you know do the dave you know close my eyes and plug my ears plan i'm i'm not above doing that well i think we're gonna have a split ruling here on the slash film court is what it looks like because i submit to you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with getting into the movie theater and taking your seat and inconveniencing everyone so long as it is before the actual movie has begun. Yeah. That is my opinion. Like inconvenience people all you want before the movie has begun. Once the movie has begun, that is sacred time. People so, have paid so for that time. You have, to, you have to define movie has begun because you, are you talking yeah. like yeah. production company logos? Yes, production and... company logos is when the movie has begun. Right. Okay. Well, that's yeah. what he's talking about. He's saying that they – I, and I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying that you have to go in during the AMC last chance to get your soda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well this person's – Marty's uh, girlfriend's compromise or the, the, his compromise with his girlfriend is that they get in there like 10 minutes into the movie, which I think is a great solution. I think the, yeah. the disadvantage for Marty is that in that situation, he doesn't get to avoid all the trailers, which – the, that's the reason it's a compromise. You don't yeah. you don't get everything you want, and I think that's I, I, got a, I got a new product for you guys. It's horse blinders for the unsullied. <laughs> uh, it also comes with noise canceling headphones, and you just like walk around in this like nice. uh, zero space. I mean, we I can, would be yeah. lying if I said I've never yeah. used noise canceling headphones in the theater to avoid. Trailers. I've walked Same. down the street. I've seen the horses wear these horse blinders, and uh, the first thing I thought of was David Chen and Jeff Kanata. It's like well, this is exactly want... what they need. 
because of how regal they were, right? We want the the opposite of horse blinders. Horse blinders force the horse to look forward. Yeah, Yeah. a complete (laughs) visor. A complete visor. Yeah, we want we want inverse horse blinders. (laughs) Inverse horse blinders. Just blinders. You only see the sides of your vision. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I I think we're not we're not above merchandising on the slash filmcast. We could make a fortune on inverse horse blinders. Yeah, we'd we'd also create like tons of accidents with people taking the reverse horse blinders (laughs) challenge. Uh, on YouTube, get, get your officially licensed slash film cast inverse horse blinders. <laughs> Except no other horse inverse horse blinders. Only the inverse horse blinders with the slash film cast logo are the ones you should try. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, well, look, look, look. Here's how to create your own. Take a pair of those 3D glasses. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just forget to recycle them. Just forget. Right. Go home. Just draw on them with black magic marker. Right. <laughs> just, just like go wild. And then take that back into the theater. There, those are your new theater shapes. Let me ask you this question, Devendra. So, I mean, I think we're pretty close to a ruling, right? Uh, like <laughs> that. That in general, we think it's okay to uh, like enter the movie. Uh, like you must be yeah. seated. No, like no coats, no food. Sure. You're not n- not moving around when the movie begins, and we define the movie start as the production logo of the movie begins. And here's why, by the way. Let me just clarify, like why I think it's production logo is because um, that is when uh, theoretically you might have score or uh, mm-hmm. you know the soundtrack music begins, begins right? Yeah. And that is, in my opinion, that is part of the movie. Yeah. Um, the the cool, uh, uh, you know, um, relook of the of the WB logo. You know, they they changed yeah. the WB logo into the cool like Dark Knight version or the the Mad Max <laughs> version or whatever. You know, have you guys seen that Onion story? There's this amazing Onion story that says uh, it's entitled "Cool Glitch Effect on Movie Studio Logo Must Mean Shit About to Go Down." Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's true. It's so true. so when when movie production logo, that is when you are done. So I think I think in general, Devendra, do you agree that that's okay? Because that means like theoretically during I trailers they can still be inconveniencing people, right? I, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's the whole point of trailers, right? Is that people? This is the setup. Like you were, you were pre-launch, yeah. and once you've launched in the movie, uh, you know, that's it's not fair. I will say though, we've all ha- had those moments where we're just maybe a little late to the movies. I, maybe this is a separate question. I do think um, any regular moviegoer needs to practice the art of the slip in. Okay, and just like, <laughs> just like, know know how to jump in there. If you don't have a reserved seat. You're going to have a bad seat, unfortunately. Uh, I like to go straight to the front of the theater in that case and just inconvenience as few people as possible. Wow. Uh, but, you know, you've you got to learn that. What you do see is you, you go to the concession stand and you get yourself – you go you go to the, the self-serve butter station and you, you grease your legs up real good. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just slip right in. You just like just zip right down a whole row of people. Zip. They don't even yeah. notice. Mm. And you, 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 you That's practice. actually very heartwarming. It's, it's heartwarming that you have sacrificed – your viewing experience so that others oh, yeah. may live. I mean, have a good viewing experience. It happens all the time. Also, I don't mind the very front row. I think it, depending on the theater, the very front row can be an amazing experience. Mm. Almost never, but yes. <laughs> uh, you, you know, the only place I've seen a good front row experience is at the Arclight in Los Angeles. Arclight's good. Also, um, any Alamo theater, actually, the front row is the one is the only ones with reclining seats, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and the screen is usually far enough away from the front row where it's you see the whole thing. You know, that's kind of the whole point. Also, the Dolby cinemas always have great front rows. Like there's a wow. huge gap between the seats and the screen, usually. Also, I, I want to go uh, circle back real quick and say there there is demonstrable evidence, empirical evidence mm-hmm. for why 
the trailer is is still acceptable for movement and mm-hmm. uh, you know getting to your seat it's because 99% of movie theaters the lights are still up during the trailers yeah yeah that's true that's true the lights go down during that like that buffer thing where it's like okay and now your main attraction yes. and that's that's how you know for sure for sure that's totally a sign by the way never never turn on your phone's flashlight I think that oh, is that is God. also unacceptable. Yeah. I see that all Agreed. the time. I what see you, all the time. The the solution, right, Devendra, is you uh-huh. wait until there's a bright scene during a trailer. Yes. Yes. Right? And then uh, pick out your spot and then get well, to I'm it. Well, I'm saying I've seen it happen even when the movie has started. And that's what tends to annoy me because like art cinemas, especially indie cinemas, they don't have huge expansive seating. You kind of have to cramp yourself in there. Uh what you got you got to do like the nighttime uh how to see the stars thing like just close your eyes for like 30 <laughs> seconds to let your eyes adjust do that please like don't don't make a suffer with your damn cell phone light okay so Agreed. so to summarize all this advice right like first of all this yeah. i mean uh, this person Madi, should be paying us for all these all these yeah. wonderful this years of experience going, years of experience we're just dropping for free on the internet right now or um, he could just invest in our brilliant merchandising <laughs> of the inverse horse blinders so yeah. um a uh, couple a couple tips from Devendra and and Jeff right is like uh close your eyes let your eyes adjust to the dark uh potentially <laughs> consider standing outside and avoiding the trailers until you need to go in but i think we all agree that when that movie logo use the um use the AMC uh pre-roll as a as a way of knowing oh got to start making my way to my seat now you know like got to get got to get to the seat but i think we all 100% agree that when that movie logo begins when the the movie studio logo begins you must be in your seat Completely situated, not moving, ready to go. Yes? Agreed. So yes. ruled, so ordered. Uh, that is the ruling of the Slash Film Court. And, of course, you can always write in with your dilemmas at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. So that's it for the Slash Film Court. Before we get to our review of Velvet Buzzsaw, followed by our uh, After Dark about burning, uh, we got to th- thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. we got to thank subscribers at the rate of $2 per month, Jesse R. Bernudi and Travis Routman. Thanks so much for your contributions. Thanks also to donors Mark Griffith and Mizan and Flora, Mizan and Flora from Toronto, Canada, who sent in this note. Flora sent in this note to accompany this donation. This letter is years overdue since my husband Mizan has listened since almost the beginning, and he's begrudgingly pulled me along through the years to the point I might enjoy your company even more than him. I don't like entertainment podcasts generally, but yours just feels like we're hanging out with friends we've known since we were kids. We've been friends since the age of 10. My husband is a stoic guy who doesn't smile easily, so seeing him grin when Jeff freaks out over minor indignities or smile at, Dave's, uh, smile at my delight in Dave's disdain for Jeff's limericks is magic for me. Uh, as the long-suffering wife of someone who spends way too much time online, I want to thank your respective partners who share your time so generously with your listeners. We're grateful to benefit from your humor, film insights, and above all, humanity that is often absent from the internet, and you're fortunate to be married to such patient and supportive women. Congratulations on making it through 500-plus episodes. Looking forward to many more car rides with you guys. Uh, so I want you know- to know, Flora, that I read that when we got it out loud to my wife. <laughs> And she uh, she nodded knowingly, and uh, I think she appreciated that very much. So that was very sweet, and it's wonderful to acknowledge that uh, we are only here, but for the the uh, grace and patience of uh, of our significant others, which is uh, for which I am at least eternally grateful. You know, I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell do an interview with Freakonomics podcast. You guys ever listen to that podcast? Oh yeah, fantastic yeah. podcast, yeah. and. 
he was saying something about the 10,000 hour rule, right? You guys heard about Malcolm Gladwell's like he he kind of helped to popularize this idea of the 10,000 yeah, hour yeah. rule. You need, you yeah. need it's horseshit. It, it's it, horseshit, it but it's I'm also but, kind of sick of him in general, Mr. Yeah. Uh, taking uh, uh, money from the cigarette industry. But yes. Oh, oh yes. for sure. Oh, for sure. Um yeah. but he uh he says like his the 10,000 hour rule is often misinterpreted, right? Yeah. That um <laughs> that a lot of people think like he's saying like, "Oh, you need to do 10,000 hours to to be good at something." And um and one of the many points he's trying to make is is that it is. It, it takes an extremely specific and special set of circumstances for someone to be able to do something for ten thousand hours, right? That like they need to have a whole support network or uh, a government that's helping them out to, so they can play chess for ten thousand hours, or you know whatever. Like, th- or they need to have like extremely supportive people in their lives um, so that they can do what they're doing for ten thousand hours. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And um, I don't think we've done. Uh, we we might have been watching po- uh, movies and podcasting for ten thousand hours, right? That's probably a pretty reasonable, probably probably pretty know. reasonable. Like I don't know how you break that point. down? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, certainly one of the the only reasons we can do it is because of the people in our lives that support us um, and that deal with uh, you know the, the it takes time and effort to do the the show and it takes people taking care of kids or making dinner or doing whatever to to make it so that we can bring the show to you every week. Um, and we appreciate all those people in our lives. So, and we Definitely. also appreciate our listeners uh, who are donating to us and helping us defray the cost of doing the show. You can always donate by going to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. You can also go to slash film.com. Click on the slash filmcast tab. Use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Um, we never want you to donate if it is in any way a hardship for you or causes you significant inconvenience. Uh, but if you have some cash to throw away, we really appreciate it. So thanks so much to all of our donors. Let's get to our review of Velvet Buzzsaw with April Wolf. Critique is so limiting and emotionally draining. I'm hoping you find something to explain what's happening. Which one's better? One or two? Better or worse, no different. No different. I'm quite curious to know what you think. I think sober hasn't been good for him. Pierce was in the full bloom of alcoholism here. Exactly. Never should have quit drinking. No originality. No courage. My opinion. I can't save you. I found something. Who did these? They're mesmeric. A guy upstairs, he died. And you just took them? He had my family or friends. I can make you rich. It's brilliant. Demand has people ready to kill. Have you ever heard of an artist in ventral deeds? No, not in our records, and we have everyone. The artist used blood to create the reddish blocks. You ever notice anything about this painting? Look at it long enough. It moves. That was from the trailer for Velvet Buzzsaw, the newest film by writer-director Dan Gilroy. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. After a series of paintings by an unknown artist are discovered, a supernatural force enacts revenge on those who have allowed their greed to get in the way of art. Joining us today is a very special guest. I'm very excited to welcome on April Wolf, film critic and host of Switchblade Sisters, uh, to this podcast. April, I've admired your work for quite a while. So glad to have you on the Slash Filmcast today. Welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's really rainy today. It's uh, it snowed like five to eight inches in Seattle uh, last night. So uh, what that means if you're in Seattle is that the entire city shuts down. 
um, <laughs> because we have no infrastructure for dealing with snow. Uh, I, I assume you're living in L.A., right? Oh, yes. I'm in L.A. We don't have snow. Ever. Yeah, but our entire city shuts down when there's rain. So it's basically the same thing. It's basically thing, the right? same thing. We're, yeah. we're at like equal levels of shutdown right now. There's um, no one who had ever imagined that Los Angeles would ever have water from the sky. So yep. nothing was built in anticipation of that. There was no <laughs> anticipation of precipitation. You know, that's the situation. In so it goes. Thank you for that, Jeff. Uh, so, April, you host a show called Switchblade Sisters at MaximumFun.org. You want to tell our listeners about that show? Yeah, uh, it's real simple. Um, it's basically every episode, me inviting a new female filmmaker on the show, and they pick their favorite genre movie. And then we spend the hour talking about that movie, getting in depth about uh, craft and process. And, um, you know, I do a lot of research and bring a lot of these old interviews with uh, directors and, you know, other craftspeople on film into it. And it, it's a really great way to just talk about why people make movies and how they make them. Uh, it's a great podcast. I've listened to many episodes of it. I'd recommend it. Um, again, you can find it at MaximumFun.org. The title of the podcast is Switchblade Sisters. So, April, speaking of art, uh, this is a show, This is a movie about art, Velvet Buzzsaw, uh, mm-hmm. a satire of the art world. How effective did you find this movie? I am 50 to 65% sold on this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> sometimes if I think about individual scenes, I get more hyped on it, but if I'm looking at it as a whole, then I feel a little bit disappointed, but there are just some knockout bits in here that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So you're half sold on the movie is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because to me, this movie is kind of a blend of two different movies, right? It's a, it's a, uh, pointed satire of the art world. And it's also a horror film. And I, I don't know that, like, to me, those things didn't mix super well. Um, but was there a half of the movie? Like, A, do you agree with my construction? And B, was there a half that spoke more to you than the other half? Um, I, I do agree with that. And I think that actually the, the, the art world uh, satire seemed to speak to me, which doesn't make a lot of sense because I am a horror buff. But mm. um, I just felt like some of the horror could have used a little bit of help but the comedy <laughs> the comedy sometimes is really wonderful and i can get into that later on when we're you know able to do some spoilers or something but there there are some very cutting lines that i just really enjoyed in this it's true it's true and I, always a great sign when you talk about a movie as in need of help which by the way is a uh is a word that I would use to describe this movie as well um or a phrase I'd use to describe this movie jeff canada mm-hmm. uh I assume you've also been to some of the the like you've been to have you been to the Broad Museum and other places depicted in this film? Indeed, I have. Yeah. Indeed so, have. so what did you think of uh, Velvet Buzzsaw? Did you find it to be a cutting work of satire for the art world? Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my thoughts about this movie would best be summed up in the form of a limerick. What a shock! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we should uh, probably explain like what's going on here to to April, who's new to this sure. podcast. Yeah, uh, Dave has decreed that there shall not ever be an episode of the Slash Filmcast without a limerick. I don't remember this, and yeah. uh, he gets yeah. very angry when there aren't limericks. So it's fallen on me really to carry that burden, <laughs> and I do it dutifully every week, just in fear mostly of of Dave's rage. Most of what <laughs> Jeff just said was a lie, but continue, Jeff. So here's my uh, 
my limerick review of Velvet Buttsaw. Yeah. Chief among my complaints, it's tough to mine horror from paint. The art world is ripe for a comedic swipe, but I can't say it's great because it ain't. <laughs> okay. All right. Not bad, Jeff. Not bad. Thank you. Solid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to like this movie and there are things about it that are good. There are things about it that give you, there are darkly funny moments. There are moments I laughed out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has got a sense of style and personality that is unique. And I dig that. But ultimately, it really doesn't add up to anything. It doesn't have much to say. The horror elements, as we already have talked about, are kind of flaccid and and t- toothless. You know, there's the there's some fun kills and fun horror things, but but none of them go as far as they could. Or you know, I just didn't. I wasn't having as much fun as I wanted to be having with that yes. part of it. Yeah, and I felt like it could have gone way farther. And ultimately, we'll get to this in spoilers. But ultimately, the my biggest complaint about this entire movie is that it's saying something that's really pat and not particularly insightful. And when you kind of step through the logic of the movie, it just it doesn't really make much sense. And it, the sense that it does make is like, well, okay, all right. It just, I just wish there was more to it. Yeah. April, I'm sorry. You were trying to chime in there. What were you trying to say? Oh, I just love the pun. It's toothless. That's a <laughs> nice. Ah, Jeff, I'm sure I didn't that even was know com- I was doing that. Was, you're, you're making puns while you didn't even know it, Jeff. Um, yeah. It was uh, a little soft and toothless because mm. uh, the velvet thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so it sounds like it didn't really work for you either, Jeff. Devendra, how about you? Yeah, um, yeah, pr- pretty much in agreement with you guys. Um, I do think this movie could have cut a little deeper. And I think that's the main thing, right? Because this is such a, it's a killer premise. It's an amazing cast. You have uh, Jake Gyllenhaal kind of going all in with another like weirdo character. And after Nightcrawler, I, you know, I'm all aboard. Like whatever Jake Gyllenhaal and Dan Gilroy do together, because that movie, I love that movie so much. And this movie just feels like wasted potential like purely wasted potential there's some funny bits um the art world commentary is fine uh there are definitely some great jokes around that and the horror stuff is kind of fun it's like as if you made a whole movie about the uh the painting from ghostbusters 2 right it's <laughs> yeah. just like if what vigo, if it could actually yeah it's just all vigo <laughs> what if he could just come out and murder people that's kind of fun i guess um but it's like yeah he just didn't go that extra mile to make this more interesting and more, I don't know, more exciting too. like this movie's almost two hours long. I feel like if it was tightened up and everything was just a little sharper, it, it, it would definitely like have a bigger impact. And that's the big thing. I'm, I'm just mostly disappointed. Like we, we kind of wasted this entire premise and this amazing cast. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, this is a bad film. Uh, it's an early contender for one of the worst films of 2019. I'm glad we saw it. You know, I don't have any regrets because you got, like you said, it's you got Dan Gilroy, who uh, I didn't see Roman J. Esquire, but Nightcrawler was one of my favorite films of that year. Amazing cast here. Robert Ellswit doing the cinematography, right? This had all the ingredients for a winning film. But unfortunately, it's not, in my opinion. Uh, there is a scene at, at some point in this movie where... Uh, a art person, a, a professional art, I think he's a buyer or curator or something, walks up to uh, several bags of garbage uh, 
and says, it's brilliant, you know? And then John Malkovich, yes. who plays an artist, says, uh, right. that's not art, you know? And yeah. it's like, oh I, oh, I see. What a delightful skewering sure. of the art world. Um, oh, I, I mean, we've seen... By the way, John Malkovich, I guess, is just like randomly exploring all the Netflix sets. He's just like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to hang out this movie for five minutes. I'm going to go over there. He's going to be in Bird it's Box. Like yeah. It's fine. Uh, just keep paying me. Yeah. Th- that is about as, inci- uh, as incisive as the art world criticism gets in this film. And, and when I say that, I mean that scene, which we've seen in probably, I don't know, a couple dozen other movies about the art world. Sure, you know, like sure. in virtually every art world movie... Uh, or movie about modern art, there is something about like, oh, people are mistaking garbage or something, you know, in in the uh, in the environment as art. I feel like I saw that that scene play out like when I was a kid in movies, right? So the fact that we're still returning back to that uh, is kind of disappointing. I think um, I, I agree, Dave. By the way, but I will say like the the way this movie portrays certain art events, like uh, I cackled when I saw that it was opening it at uh, Art Basel in Miami because that's one weird like art thing I've actually been to. And it is exactly that. It is people at the front shouting about how they can't get in. It's, uh, my name's on the list. Of course, this is ridiculous. And going through a lot of exhibitions that are just like uh, kind of dumb, kind of meaningless. And trying to see everybody try to wrap their heads around it and try to find meaning in meaningless. I, or I don't know, just like things that may seem meaningless on the surface. But yeah. But also the movie is trying to have its cake and eat it, too, because and, you know, we'll get more into this in spoilers. But I think ultimately it's. It comes down on the side of art and trying to say that, like, oh, crass commercialism is the problem. True art isn't. But it, it, it's it, you know, it's talking out of both sides of its mouth and not really making a point mm-hmm. in either case, I think. I, I think it's a movie by people who hate modern art or, you know, specifically Dan Gilroy, I guess, hates modern art and the world around it and the accoutrement of it and – Everything in this movie is informed by that perspective. And, you know, that's fine. Of course, whatever. Modern art might deserve a good skewering, but this movie I don't think had anything new to add to that skewering, which Mm -hmm. we've seen many times before already. I think there's a more subtle point, though. I I don't think it's it's a a movie by people that hate modern art. I think it's a movie that made by people that hate the modern art industrial complex. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. fair enough. That's fair enough. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think that they're trying to say that art is beautiful and the and the the uh monetization of it the the uh, selling of it is somehow uh despicable i i don't know i, I actually you know what i i revised what i just said in response to what you just said jeff i actually don't <laughs> think that's true i think i think it actually does hate modern art i think it thinks of modern art as fairly intellectually bankrupt uh and i i think it throws in a lot of real world references to like show its its street cred, like the the Art Basel thing in Miami, and there's real artists that are alluded to in this movie. But then when you look at the actual modern art that's on display in the movie, um, there's like GoPro Kindergarten, right? Uh, that is, it's like oh, we're strapping GoPros onto kids and put it, you know, putting the video on this thing, and it's. It, I think it is clearly made by someone who thinks that modern art is stupid. Um, I, it's so. it's kind of tough to like. It, now we're assuming we we're understanding what they think, right, or what Dan Gilroy is thinking. I think enough of this movie shows that it is there. There's a certain here. There's a purity of art that he's clamoring for. So I don't know if I could say like he hates all modern art. Well, That's I think I'll say yeah. one other thing about it, which is like my my wife saw this film and she has. I think she has. She has spent multiple years of her life. Um, critiquing art writing about art like she's she studied it as like uh, a- academically 
and she thought the art in this movie uh, was very bad. And I, and I said, I said, um, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know it was intentionally bad? And she she just she just expressed that one had to know. It's like if you were watching a Star Is Born, and instead of Shallows, they sang Mary Had a Little Lamb. Right? It's like, oh, uh, anyone right. who knows what music is would know that this actually sounds terrible, and it's written. It, it by could a also just be he doesn't he doesn't like. I, we could say he doesn't understand it maybe completely right like shallows was written by an actual singer you know and like uh, a lot of people who understand music it wasn't just bradley cooper writing a song oh yeah so you're saying it could be incompetent versus malice yeah it's just like he's he's just (laughs) doesn't fully understand but uh, i I like how dave like you're just going straight to the harshest potential view of everything right now definitely april april what are your what are your thoughts on kind of how art itself is portrayed in this film I think, you know, also like the idea that we are ascribing intention to the filmmaker is, you know, kind of a, a murky area to get into because we can't really do that unless they said something in the interviews. I didn't see it as coming off that he hated art. However, I do think that it's a it's a good point that I think Jeff brought up when, you know, it's just saying that um, the industrial complex of it is, you know, despicable. But I think that they really did try to make some interesting art for it because you can see it with, and, you know, this isn't a spoiler because it's in the trailer. There is a sphere piece that's in it, and that's kind of treated with a kind of uh, reverence by both the characters and the story as something that they found very interesting. Um, So there's a few times when the art comes off as, you know, not so bad. And, yeah, it's incompetence of, you know, like, how can you get real modern artists? Like, that's a pet peeve of, like, most of the things that I think about. Modern mm-hmm. art in most movies is terrible. You always have, like, a picture, you know, like an artist or just like, oh, they're supposed to be amazing. But no one can actually recreate the modern art that's amazing because it's such a difficult thing to do. Right. I think David Cronenberg was probably the only person I can think of who, who did a great job for his movies recreating modern art. So I, I think that's a great I, well, point. I think it's a great point, April. And yeah, I, I guess I should take it back a, a bit because I think the sphere was, in fact, very good. And I also think there's a moment when you look at uh, a painting that the John Malkovich character makes and it is meant to be bad. And I think the movie sufficiently conveys that it is bad. You know what I mean? Um, also, I mean, I don't we're, we're kind of getting into spoilers, but um, there's a David Diggs character. Right. His entire purpose of being there is to show that right. modern art can be uh, laudable and uh, and noble. Yes. You know, he he's pure. Right. He's Ryan Gosling in La La Land. He like, doesn't is... sell out. Right. He doesn't yeah. sell out. And that's the point that the movie is making is don't sell out. Don't make art for money. And the problem is everyone in the movie that wants to profit off of it without actually being creative are the evil ones are the are the people worthy of being you know in a horror movie all right i'm i'm back on your side again um i think you're right I th- <laughs> all of you're right all of you're right i i take it back uh it's been a real roller coaster ride been, yeah. it has been it has been um but why don't we get to spoilers for uh velvet bus starting wait before before oh. we get there yep can, can, can i just say like shout out to Whatever the hell Jake Gyllenhaal is doing in this performance. I think it's a ton of fun. Like, even if the movie doesn't quite come together, I think what this whole thing, this whole act, this it's very much a send-up of snooty critics, but I can't help but feel a bit of, like, film critic-like, uh, you know, uh, commentary there, too. There's a point where he says to somebody, uh, whatever respect I had for your work has completely evaporated. 
in this just like in this complete tone that is hilarious. I was laughing so much. Yeah, um, but there's never yeah. been a critic alive that has a body like that. You know, <laughs> it's I'm very I'm very confused. I'm very confused <laughs> by a lot of things. And I love that this movie also gives him plenty of uh, naked moments just to like hang out and be naked because that's exactly how I uh, write, I guess. <laughs> yeah. how we all work. That's right? how we do the slash film cast. We're yeah. all uh, you don't yeah. know. No, you got that memo, that right, April, that we're all supposed to... Yeah. So there are, there are many great quotes by the Jake Gyllenhaal character whose name is Morph Vanderwalt in the movie. Great names in this movie, too. Yeah. Morph. Uh, yeah. I, I like the, the phrase, uh, critique is so limiting and emotionally draining. You know, like, uh, it's kind of how I feel every time I record the Slash Filmcast. So uh, many, many quotes from, from Morph that I'll probably integrate into my daily life. So good shout I out. I want to listen to Morph's podcast because I think that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Morph's podcast would be great. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's move on to spoilers for Velvet Buzzsaw starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be I want to complete my thought on on my thesis here <laughs> complete because thought. I think I think bizarrely the most important scene in this entire movie is played over the end credits as, <laughs> as Netflix is attempting to transition me into the next show, uh-huh. which is stupid and unfortunate. But I think that's that's the most important scene in the whole movie is John Malkovich alive and well making <laughs> art for himself on the beach mm. Not dead because he's he's embraced the free nature of art and the the exercise of creating it just for yourself, just for the world without monetizing it and creating something beautiful on the beach that's transitory and will be swept away by the sea. Uh, And I think that's the thesis of the entire movie is like the people that die are the ones that monetize it and the people that live like David Diggs and yeah. John Malkovich are the ones that make it for its own sake. And it's such a pat, I think, easy thesis, but I think it's the thesis of the movie. Yeah, for sure. This movie has a good justification for who dies uh, better than, like, say, Jurassic World or something, right? Like, that's something. That's a good comparison, right? All right. Yeah. <laughs> Two very comparable movies. Yeah. Uh, April, what do you think? You agree with that formulation of, of the point of the movie? Uh, the Jurassic World? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think that that's like very clearly the intention to to derive from it, and um, I, I'm okay with it being so simple because I do like that kind of simplicity, especially in my horror films. And this is partially a horror. So. Well, let's talk about the horror aspects of it. I mean, in my opinion, the horror elements of this movie are completely ineffective, and actually, it filled mm-hmm. me with dread because the first or second time a horror scene occurs. I, I was just completely not scared at all. And I thought it was uh, kind of cheesy, some of the ways that this, this plays out and um, not particularly uh, I do think that is the point, by the way. Like, the, 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 the glory of this movie is that it would be a cheesy-ass Hall Hell B-movie send-up that is both maybe not scary, but a lot of there's a lot of campy horror movies that aren't scary. And I think it's trying to do that and still failing at that. I guess it's not, it's, it doesn't go far enough in that direction, yeah. though, in my opinion. Like, it's yeah. if if you want it to be like super cheesy, like the yeah. rest of the movie is, uh, sh- like lit in such just like the lighting is lit in such a way it's like kind of like a, almost like a straight drama or, or or a thriller, 
And uh, it's a movie called Velvet Buzzsaw. And I feel like when you hear that, you're like, that's that's hilarious, isn't it? I, I don't I don't know I don't I didn't have that I, I you know I think we're interpreting the the intentions of the filmmaker differently I I just it, it was a, a situation where I was filled with dread watching uh, the first couple scenes and seeing how they played out uh, and, and being completely unscared and unaffected by them and, and knowing knowing that I'd have to sit through five or six more of these things where <laughs> uh, these these critics die in increasingly outlandish and drawn out ways. Yeah. Uh, Ah, I, I just uh, I just found it to be completely ineffective for me. But April, what what did you think of the the actual horror aspects? Right, like uh, were you scared at all? Did you find it to be well done? Did any of it speak to you? I'm rarely scared of horror films, so I have a hard time judging that. It's usually just whether or not something is creative. Yeah. Um. And and this one, I think it kind of failed. I think one of the first deaths, um, didn't really seem clear to me what was happening. And I think that that was something that um, kind of prevented me from getting into the fun of it. Because I, I do agree. I think it is supposed to be camp. And and I think that there's a really great place for camp, especially, you know, the idea that you're doing kind of like a B-movie ripoff of something that's so highbrow. Yep. Um, yep. I love that kind of premise. You know, I, I love camp in this. But it's just... I, I almost feel like they just they just didn't go far enough in these things. Like they just weren't creative enough. And mm-hmm. and you know, I think that's where people who generally who actually make a lot of horror, they have a better understanding of what's been seen and what hasn't been seen yet. My bigger problem is, and I think this speaks to what you just said, April, about the clarity, is it, they have this really awesome idea that we get to at the end, but it's not set up and paid off effectively, right? The big the big idea that is actually cool when you think about it. And the reason the movie is named velvet buzzsaw Mm -hmm. is the final death (laughs) is, Oh my God. She tried to get away from art because art's going to kill her. Uh She had a tattoo and that is art. Oh, she can't get away because it's on her body and that kills her. Right. That is a very cool idea. Yeah. But the first time we see what the way that's all set up is crazy, scary dude who has checkered past and weird psychological issues uh, ha- makes these insanely kind of disturbing images. And those are imbued with some magic that can kill people, except the first time that a painting kills someone, it's not one that he made. It's the monkey painting in the rest stop. So it's muddled already of like, well, that's is that supposed to be one of his paintings? Because mm-hmm. his paintings are the evil magic that is killing people. But no, what we learn is all art will kill you. Mm-hmm. Well, his, for his some paintings reason. are sort of like infecting the other art. Or something. Yes, but none of that yeah. is clear, and it all and that yeah. could have been a cool reveal. That the you start with his paintings are killing people, and then oh. Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to get rid of all the Dees, all the Dees. He's going into this thing and trying to get rid of the Dees because the Dees are what's evil. And then you find out, no, all art can kill you. And then you get to, oh, even that tattoo can kill you. But that progression, that reveal, that path of revelation that would be fun and interesting and clever is completely broken and doesn't pay off like that because it's just muddled and and unclear 100 percent agree jeff i i think the fact that the movie doesn't do a very good job establishing the rules and really like to lead with that kill of that guy at the gas station i i think is just a 
very confusing, right? Because it's like, yes. okay, why is there a painting of these uh, monkeys in this gas station? And then the, the monkeys are killing him. And like, what's going on? Listen, you know? listen yeah, have you not piece? been to gas stations with art? <laughs> come on yeah we're like did 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 the dece painting like lead him to this gas station that has another dece painting in it you know like right. that was yeah. what i was thinking but i i agree that um the movie really missed an opportunity to kind of build up a- a- and make it clear what each death represents right that like right. usually for these movies like the the method of dispatching the people is in some way tied with their uh, inherent flaws, right? Like it's in some way like a reflection on them, whereas versus just like oh, generically it's art that's killing them, right? Or um, yeah, I mean that's that's what happens in this this case. It would have been interesting if like each the art piece that killed them was in some way related to their biggest flaw as a human or something like that, you know. But also, um, I, I had the thought. So at the end, Rene Russo gets the brilliant thought, even though it's not set up in any way. But she gets the brilliant thought of I'm going to just remove all the art from my house, right? right? But then I thought. Isn't architecture art? Isn't her house yeah. itself a piece of art? Isn't <laughs> that is. isn't that cactus, <laughs> that cactus in her? You know, isn't that artfully grown and and displayed? Like that whole concept could have been a really cool thing to explore. Like what is art and what isn't? But this movie just is uninterested and it like misses the point entirely on that. You know? I feel like for this movie to really for it to really lean into camp, this would have been a good like Sam Raimi idea or something. Like I'm thinking of back when like. The last good, fun, campy thing he's done, like uh, Drag Me to Hell, which is an awesome movie, still rocks. Uh, but it's like, yeah, we've completely forgotten about it. And Sam Raimi has moved on to other stuff now. Yeah, yeah but but in Dra- Drag Me to Hell, right, the the kind of cheesy horror elements were there's a, a curse. Piece, yeah, yeah were, were of a piece with the rest of the movie, right? In this movie, I feel like uh, it, they just didn't fit quite as well. Yeah, uh, I agree. We we agree. But I, <laughs> you, you're trying to ascribe a t- intention here, Dave. I'm saying that is exactly what this movie is trying to do. It fails at it. Oh, yeah, it yeah, is no, no. The trying to to combine this highbrow and you know culture. Yeah, I, I think I'm agreeing with you that 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 is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'm agreeing with you that it attempted that and did not succeed at doing that. Um, yeah. But that said, you know, April, in our in our earlier discussion, you had alluded to um, some things or some moments from the movie that really worked for you, and I'm wondering if uh, if there's any more of those that you can recall at this moment. I mean, I think it's just the little uh, drop in lines that they have. Uh, like, for instance. I'm really happy that someone called out the mispronunciation of the Broad, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is just, it's so dumb, but it's something you feel like you should correct people if you're from LA and it's like, why am I doing this? Um, and uh, I, I actually quite enjoyed the dumb joke of um, the, uh, the, the woman who is explaining how Tony Collette's body is um was on the floor at the museum like over the phone. <laughs> yes that's the best part of the movie it's so it's, funny it's so and like and they were splashing around and it like just keeps going and going and i'm like yes this is what i want from this movie that, and the running gag sequence, by the way it should have been longer it should have been more like we should have seen all of that yeah i think <laughs> and the the running gag of the assistant girl who constantly discovers the dead bodies that's a really funny idea like yeah. she goes from job to job and Every time she discovers the the dead body, but like nothing is made of it. it well, no, no. At the end, she's out. She's out of that town. Yeah, she's on a plane. Like that, just, that. That's the joke, basically. Still yeah. felt like a only a half of something. You know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. 
All right, folks. Um, well, uh, any other uh, any other thoughts on this movie? What worked or didn't work, uh, or shall we shall we bring it to an end? I think overall, um, some of us liked it more than others. <laughs> Most of you liked it more than me, but uh, I, I think we all agree that it tried to do some things that it didn't quite succeed at. Yeah? Well, can you guys think of any movies that have attempted something similar and may have worked better? Like, I do think uh, in a weird way, like maybe not like straight horror, but I love the way like uh, Phantom Thread kind of combined like this high art plus like thriller concept. Like there there are ways to do this. And I think this movie just completely failed. Uh, Somebody on Twitter had also mentioned uh, Jeremy Saulnier's uh, Murder Party, which is a very similar sort of premise, actually. It's not high art, but it's about a party being held for the sake of crazy people's art. Uh, there's a, yeah, it's a great, it's such great material. I wish there's they had a, done more. There's a, the movie that it, that resonates for me and this may be weird. You guys may not agree, but is uh LA story. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Martin movie where it's like, everything's a little heightened and bizarre and it's skewering. I mean, there wasn't really horror, but there's the supernatural thing happening and it's, you know, it's uh it's skewering the sort of culture of people who are self-absorbed, you know? So. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite movie about modern art is My Kid Could Paint That, honestly. Oh, I, yeah. It so came good. out a long time ago, but it, it starts as a documentary about this child who's making these uh, works of modern art that are theoretically worth millions. And it ends up being an exploration of the notion of art itself and of documentary itself. Um, I thought it was a fascinating film and uh, would recommend it. That movie came out in 2007. Um, that part where the the sculpture eats that kid's arm uh, is oh, so crazy. I'm surprised they put it coming. in the documentary, but uh, it, you know it, it deserved to be in there. Uh, <laughs> April, any uh, any movies you'd recommend instead of Velvet Buzzsaw? It's tough to think about specifically modern art movies, but I, if you're thinking about like other art movies, I do think that Todd Solondz's movie from like 2001, I think storytelling. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. I'm a big Todd Solons fan and people can usually take him or leave him, but I'm a super fan. And I think storytelling was really wonderful for its kind of dry wit of um, exploring MFA programs and writers and just tearing that whole thing apart. And um, also Selma Blair. Selma Blair is so good in that movie. And I would highly recommend that one instead. All right. Um, storytelling from 2001. Uh, I have not seen it, but it uh, sounds really interesting based on the description. So uh, I will try to check it out. Uh, I think that's going to wrap us up for today uh, from the perspective of our review of Velvet Buzzsaw. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. And our Slash Film Court music comes from Simon and Harris, SimonMHarris.com. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week as well as our burning After Dark episode. But in the meantime, April Wolf, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, since I write for a lot of places, people can follow me at, at a Wolfful uh, on Twitter. And I always post everything that I write there. Very cool. And be sure to check out April's podcast, Switchblade Sisters, at MaximumFun.org. Jeff Kanata, where can people find more of your work on the internet? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. I also do a video game podcast called DLC. You can find that wherever you download podcasts or at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Devendra Hardware? You can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about tech at Engadget.com. I'm on paternity leave this month, though, so I probably won't be around there much, but uh, I'm also doing my tech Q&A podcast at nomortech.net. That's no with a K. 
And uh, find my stuff at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. Dave Chen SKY. I'm going to be trying to make two YouTube videos per month at least for the year 2019. And there's already some good stuff there. So check it out. Tune in next week. We'll be reviewing The Lego Movie 2, the second part here on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, and we may try to squeeze in a, a bonus episode or a bonus review of Cold Pursuit. Maybe it'll be in the, what we've been watching. Uh, but that should be fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Slash Filmcast. We'll see you later. Hello and welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, where we talk about a variety of random topics. This week we're going to be talking about Lee Chang Dong's new film, Burning. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Jong Su bumps into a girl who used to live in the same neighborhood as him who asks him to look after her cat while on a trip to Africa. When back, she introduces Ben, a mysterious guy she met there, who confesses his secret hobby. Uh, this is the Slash Filmcast, and joining us today on this podcast for the After Dark is Dan Gvozdin, the host of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm thrilled to be here. I'm doing fine. How about you guys? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, and yeah, uh, the reason I invited Dan on was because I was tweeting about this movie the other day, and Dan responded like he had seen it at apparently the same time as me. Kind of creepy, Dan. Trying to imitate my, <laughs> my viewing habits. I, did we get on the same uh, um, like online screener uh, list? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> I uh, I bought it from iTunes. That's how I saw. Yeah. Uh, it was ten bucks. It's ten dollars on yeah. iTunes. Do it. Yeah, check it out. Check it out. So uh, it's very difficult to talk about this movie without talking about spoilers. But I I will just say I think it's a movie that we all would recommend you see. And Devendra, mm-hmm. you have some thoughts on like why we should see this movie, right? Definitely. It's a, I will say it's not a movie for everyone. Yes. Like I'll admit that fully. It is a slow burn thriller, but it has so many elements that I really enjoy. Uh, specifically, just like a really deliberate uh, pacing. I think it builds up a mystery really well. Also, it's based on a story by uh, Haruki Murakami, who's one of my favorite authors. And I think this is this is the best Haruki Murakami adaptation I've ever seen. Uh, there was Norwegian Wood a couple of years ago, and that didn't end up so well. His stories are just so weird. And like um, there's a lot of like magical realism. There's a lot of like weird imagery and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't always work cinematically. This movie kind of brings it all together. And uh, I have not seen any of uh, Lee Chung Dong's other films. Uh, but from what I hear, they're all amazing, too. So, like, yeah, a lot of reasons to do this if you are interested in a really nice cerebral thriller. All right. I might add also, like, if you do give it a shot, please stay through the third act because this yes. is one of those movies where the first two acts are all like details that you might not think are adding up to something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they most definitely are uh, in a way that I, I, I've not seen a more satisfying payoff, I think, yeah. uh, 
for I guess an art house movie than this one in quite a while. I so, wanted to like go back and rewatch this movie immediately once it yes, ended. Yeah, just to, like piece it all back together. Yeah. So this is a movie I watched uh, with my wife, and for the the movie is two and a half hours long, and for the first like two hours and maybe ten minutes. Uh, my wife and I gave each other a couple looks at random points and we're like, really? Is this, is this like, you're like, is this Roma all over again? Well, yeah. no, actually Roma is a movie uh, I loved. Um, and... but like the first part of Roma where you were questioning. Uh, you yeah. Were yeah. There. This is a movie yeah. where we had lots of people had said like, this is one of the best films of 2018 and we're two hours into this movie and we're like, really? Is this, is this like, when does the best part start? You know, like that's what we thought. But then uh, by the end, I'm like, okay, that movie is incredible. You know, like that <laughs> that movie is amazing. It's a movie that's going to reward repeat viewings. It's a movie that um, has stayed with me many days after I've seen the movie uh, and is, is a movie I want to talk about so much that I'm like, let's do this after dark on it. So let's get to it, shall we? Let's get to spoilers for Burning, right? So we're going to spoil Burning. Um, and we, we got to spoil Burning because like really yeah. the movie revolves around a central mystery, right? That, like yeah. a, a central question in this movie. Like, also, it's like, hard to spoil because we don't quite know. Yeah, we what don't. Happens, we don't even right? know what. <laughs> we don't even know what it is, right? We don't even know. But I, I think, like, for me, the big question in this film, right, is, um, did uh, Steve Yoon's character, did uh-huh. Ben, uh, kill Hamie? Right. That's that's the big question. I think. I think um, that all the signs in the movie kind of point to that basically i think so that's not the question yeah. i'm asking yeah what's the yeah. question you're asking i'm asking can we believe any of these people uh <laughs> i don't think any of these characters are trustworthy in any regard like sure. this movie to me it's 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 all mirrors you know everything is the opposite of something else and every hour that i think of this movie i come to a different conclusion and it's not even about who murdered this woman whether she was murdered or not, she could just be in Africa again. Uh, like I'm coming down to saying, can I trust that this woman wasn't distrustworthy herself in the first place? Or can I even trust that these two men that I'm seeing both exist? I, I, I've right, really right. gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> wow, that's that's pretty intense, Dan. I don't know if I'm go- I'm going to go that You're far. You're going super but, deep here. But, yeah. but uh, let, let, before we get to the central mystery, let, let's point out a few kind of interesting elements of the movie. Um, that take that that kind of like uh, when I first saw it, I, I thought, oh, this is just kind of a, a plot development that may or may not add up to something. And then uh-huh. la- later on, I'm thinking, oh, I, I guess it really does have meaning. Yeah, you mean Chekhov's uh, uh, closet of knives? Yeah, Chekhov's like, closet yeah. of knives, like his. De- so I think like <laughs> like uh, Jong Su's father, right, has a closet of knives, mm-hmm. uh, has a history of violence, right, and there's this, this idea of like violence being passed on from the father to the son, right? Um, that this kind of uh, violence is is inherited, and uh, and may have driven Jong Su to some of the actions we see later on in the film. Uh, there is this whole uh, kind of uh, economic backdrop to the film, right? In in South mm-hmm. Korea, what's great about this movie, right, is I've I've read you know I don't know a dozen essays about this movie, so I'm just kind of spitting out like a bunch of random things that I've seen that I liked uh, or observations that I've liked. But one of the things is like. It puts the lie to the idea that there's like a monolithic Asian experience, right? You see movies sure, like Crazy sure. Rich Asians and it's like, oh, all Asians must be like that. And it's like, nope. Um, you have an Asian here, uh, a Korean, uh, um, Amer- like po- possibly a Korean American played by Steve Yoon. Uh, he has an American uh, name, Ben, right? 
Uh, and uh, apparently, I'm not, I'm not a Korean speaker, but apparently, the way he speaks Korean is very much the way an American would speak it. Like it's someone who, when he speaks it, you recognize that he's not a native speaker, right? So he kind of in- inhabits this other world where he's not quite South Korean, but he's um, he's not exactly American either because he's living in South Korea. Um, there's the whole North and South Korean divide with like uh, uh, propaganda being like. <laughs> Being spewed at Jiangsu like all the time as long as he can it's remember. Just the sound of nature, right? Yeah, the sound of nature. But also like the the uh, sorry, I meant to also say like the class stratification, right? Um, yes, ben yes. is super rich, and Jiangsu is not. And like the way that the film uses uh, set dressing and and production design and so on uh, is really skillful, right? That you you see this oh well, like harsh difference between these two for, like ways of life. Um, and you hear in the background, like, oh, unemployment is at a record high. And for youth, like, there's this, all, all this disaffected youth. And, and what are they doing in the world? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, their lives kind of amount to uh, not what they had hoped for. And then there's also, yeah. obviously, like, the gender politics part. There's that speech that one of Hamey's uh, coworkers gives about how this is no country for women. And, and women are expected to be, you know, um, very beautiful. But if they are too beautiful, then uh, men put them down. And if they're dressed too casually, then men put them down, and it's like they're, 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 there's and it's an impossible balance for them to strike. So those are just like a, like many of the undercurrents of what's happening here, uh, and it reminded me in, in that way of like widows. Like there's a lot like going on underneath yeah, yeah. the surface plot of that film, um, but really in Burning, like not very much actually happens in the plot of the film, right? Like mm-hmm. there's not that many developments. There's all these ideas that are brought to life in a really interesting way uh, in the conflict of these three people. So I've been talking quite th- a bit. Yeah, um, I think that's what's really powerful about it, right? Like, because this is a movie that just feels like you're watching this guy. He's really down his luck. He's not making much money. I think he's he is like the prototypical uh, millennial experience right now, too. So yeah, like, the, even it's outside great. The of first Korea. Scene, the first scene of the movie, yeah. right? He's introduced yeah. as a laborer, right? In a, in a long, continuous yeah. shot. And he's um, delivering like he's a deliverer, basically. Yeah. Like he's he's just delivering packages. But I think like also um, the class stratification just becomes so clear super quickly where, you know, you see once you're introduced to Ben, like he just has a completely different way of speaking and living and the way he like basically we don't know where his money comes from. Yeah. And that's that's also like that is a thing today, too. Like it's be it influencers or whoever, like there are definitely there's a cadre of people, you know, all the people who could afford to go to the fire festival, basically, who we don't know where their money comes from. We don't know what's happening. And it's hard not to feel jealous and annoyed if you're working from the bottom and seeing this just like, you know, this wealth up top where they don't seem to be having to work at all for it or anything. There's, like, a, lot th- there's a lot of that. There's a lot of resentment. Yeah. Right. And in, in the way that uh, Steve Yoon's character can casually mm-hmm. disregard the law, there's a scene where he uh, offers to smoke marijuana with them, right? And uh, it it is a highly controlled substance in South Korea. But the fact that he can Mm -hmm. just casually do it, who gives a shit, he can do it, it's fine. Um, It's like whatever. It's an indication of his privilege. Uh, I like how... Go ahead, Dan. I like how he expresses that he has never cried before. You know, like he's never, he has no experience. He, he's never him. experienced tragedy, right? Yeah. But, yeah. And, and, and when asked about his work, he describes it as, uh, I can't I really describe it to you. I play and it's I just, play. Jesus. you know, an inherent, uh, you know, mirroring of work and play these two opposites. I think mm-hmm. the, uh, agreed with you about that mirroring part. I do think that the part about him never crying is a good indication of his sociopathic 
Oh, po- possibly sociopathic like, tendencies, right? Like this is basically and, that's when you know this movie is basically like a South Korean psycho, basically. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, that performance is chilling, right? Like it, it is so a very good. chilling. It, he's completely like seems emotionally detached. Uh, the way he laughs, the way the, he the giggles, way he laughs, is he just can, like the Jesus way he yawns. Christ. You know that guy could murder you and not feel a yeah. thing about it, right? And, and I, the yawn, by the way, is the tell. The yawn is. Oh, I guess I'm tired of this girl now. So I guess I'm just going to do the thing. I'm going to go find another like healthy flower to uh, to 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 uh, worship or something. Well, the thing with the girl, so I, I view that as very different than you. I, I think like what's going on in that scene, right? There's a couple scenes where Steve Yoon's character Ben brings a girl into his circle of friends, and essentially, uh, what he's doing, in my opinion, is is he and his friends are basically gawking at this person. Oh yeah, they yeah. are. They're, they have the center attention there. Yeah, but but she's from a much lower class, right? Mm-hmm. Than they mm-hmm. are, right? And uh, you know about Hamy that she's like very in debt, that she needs to work as this dancer girl, um, drawing raffles in front of stores to make money, and um, and she's not in a good economic situation. She's from a, she's from a different class, you know. She's just from yeah. a, like yeah. imagine if you were like hanging out, like if it was like a bunch of like Silicon Valley bros, and like they brought like a, a waitress you know to like hang out with them um it'd be like that kind of dynamic right and agreed with you that the yawn shows that he's like getting bored of it but i i think that's fundamentally what's happening is he's bringing mm-hmm. these girls in um and uh and gawking at them and yeah. and uh i mean let, why don't we share our interpretations of what's going mm-hmm. on at the end of the film right uh I'll, I'll start i mean i think that probably the most easy interpretation is that Ben has murdered Hamie, right? Yes. That, that's and he's the, been doing this for a while. And he's been doing this for a while because yeah. he says to he says to Jiangsu, he says, uh, hey, I, I burn greenhouses all the time. Um, it, it's like abandoned buildings that no one cares about, right? Yep. And uh, I, I burn them. And like it's, you'd be surprised how quickly you can just, just make them completely vanish. Um, and of course, he's not talking about actual greenhouses. He's talking about. I mean, people. he he could also be talking about actual greenhouses, <laughs> but could. I also think like yeah, it's clearly the metaphor for these forgotten women. These forgotten women. He describes her as vanishing yeah. into smoke yes. as well. Yes. Right, yeah. right. He he's talking about these forgotten women, women that have been forgotten by society. Right. That yeah. hey, I can just make these people vanish without a trace, um, and no one no one cares. And then of course, like Jiangsu is like, well, I checked all I checked all the greenhouses near me, and he's like, hey, <laughs> oh, um, he's so maybe you should have checked uh, closer. Yeah, maybe yeah. really, really close. You know, like really, like Bond villain esque. Like really, <laughs> just can you read what I'm saying, kid? Are you yeah. picking up what I'm putting down, Jiangsu? <laughs> um, and so it's it's uh, greenhouses that like mm-hmm. the greenhouses are people now. And um, uh, by the way, like it's people full of life. It's people with a lust for life. And it's like the whole thing, um, hey, me kind of breaks down, right? Like the reason she goes to Africa is to explore their people who are looking for, uh, what was it? Um, the Great Hunger. The Great, great hunger. hunger and Little Hunger, right? Yeah. And it's like Little Hunger is like the basic sustenance. Great Hunger is like f- finding a reason to live, finding a meaning for life. And to me, this entire movie is about Ben being basically a vampire, uh, you know, like a social vampire who just cannot if he cannot cry, he probably cannot even find happiness on his own. So he's sort of like absorbing it from these women who are like very energetic and filled with life. Right. Other other evidence to support this reading of the film. Um, there are uh, accou- like little accoutrement, little um, souvenirs right in mm-hmm. that drawer. Uh, and I the freeze frame. The cat boil. The cat. 
Yeah, the cat boil. Well, the, yeah, it, it's it's vague, right? But yeah, the cat boil. But the the souvenir, if you, I freeze framed it, and there is a bracelet uh, that looks like a girl's bracelet with the name Michaela on it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like clearly not just like one girl's stuff. It's multiple people's stuff. And so he's like taking these souvenirs. The cat boil, that's another great one that you guys mentioned. Um, and then I, I thought to myself, well, it doesn't make sense because at the end of the movie, uh, Ben says to Jong Su, he says, hey, why did you call me out here? I thought you said I was going to meet you and Hey Me here. That's what Ben says at right, the end of the movie. Right, right. And well, he's just going along with the lie. Well, right? that's the thing. I, is, I, I, if yeah. Ben is the killer, uh, why would he like agree to meet? Jung Soo and Hae Mi in the middle, like when he know that Jung Soo's right. lying. It's the middle of nowhere, right? Right. right it's right. the middle of nowhere. Like when he have caught onto the ploy. And my wife's response to that was that Ben has acted with impunity his entire life. He's theoretically yeah. murdered many women and never mm-hmm. been caught. So why would why would Jung Soo this guy? This, He's testing the system. Yeah. Why would Jung Soo this guy who's like very passive and like um hasn't shown himself to be violent at all? Uh, and ha- can't even like can barely like stand up for himself, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like Jung Su is completely reverent to Ben, right? In a really interesting way, I think. Yeah, I don't know if reverence is the word I'd use, but he he understands. It's very Ben's respectful. Posi- he understands it's, Ben's position of power. I think. Yeah, yeah, and, it's very respectful. Like it's a very particular thing where he's always saying like "sir." He's always like bowing to him in a very specific way. Like it's always in deference to Ben. Mm. So. Uh, so why would he do that? And my, yeah, so that was my wife's response. Is like, well, it's because he's been acting with impunity. So that that doesn't necessarily, that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily counteract that theory that Ben is uh, is right. not the killer. Now, right. I read a really interesting theory on Reddit that was kind of cool, which was that like um, that Ben's what Ben does is he helps women like restart their life, right? Like that's, I, that's, I saw, I saw that thread. On right, that's why like and the the that makeup reminded kit. me of why I don't go to Reddit for film analysis. Well, I thought it was kind of interesting because he's like, oh, what do I, what do you do? You play, and then like that would also explain like why does he bring the people? Why does he bring the girls to his friends? Because that's something that's weird for a serial killer to do. Like introduce your friends to this girl that you're about to kill. It feels like it would leave a trail of of knowledge behind. It's, I mean, um, it, it's showing off in a very specific way that I think Sophia pass do all the yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, well. sure. Uh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But, but, uh, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting theory. I think there's like a lot, like there's more evidence in favor of the, he killed Hamey theory. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what I, what is great about this film is that it leaves any of those options open in my, sure. like in, in my opinion, it does not definitively come down on any one of those sides. You can interpret it any way you want. Um, Dan Kvosten, you you said like you're you're just completely like any this could all be a figment like at one point I thought maybe these are all figments of Jiang Su's imagination and he's <laughs> writing his book like I did have that yeah. thought but what is your thought on like what is the reality of the film? Well, I mean that's interesting because when I first finished the film, I, I was searching for the reality. That was like what I wanted to do, and 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 ultimately I came to the decision that it doesn't really matter. Like we're looking at this tangerine. It's either there or not, and you can choose to believe it's there or not, as kind of discussed earlier on in the film. And I think the movie is so much more interesting with Hamey being a Schrodinger's cat, you know, that she's both dead and alive at the same time. She could just be anywhere, you know. And then to to accept that as your ending, that you're not going to know, that opened me up to a whole other, like, way of looking at the movie, which is to say, like, what is what is actually going on here between all these characters and and their relationships with each other. And there's a lot of really strange, contradictory details that we're getting. So, like, yes, uh, David, like, I want to agree that, like, he's a serial killer, 
you know, and, and that's what all the clues are leading to. But I ultimately was like, it doesn't really matter. Like the more interesting thing to me is like looking at the character of Jong Su and how he's repeating the cycles of violence within his family and he's creating his own narrative through like the books that he's reading and how he's interpreting the world and then looking at what that means between the relationship between Ben and Jong Su we see later Ben is reading Faulkner and establishing a relationship beyond Hamey yeah. with Jong Su it's also based on like a Faulkner story too like they, yeah. there's both a Faulkner and Murakami story uh, called Barn Burning the movie seems very interested in uh, like fractured narratives too. We get this kind mm-hmm. of uh, like story of the well that is both true and not true right. from very Rashomon esque, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And even the introduction of Hey Me when he meets Hey Me, she says to him, "You might not recognize me because I got plastic surgery," and so even her identity is called into question. Like, uh-huh. is this someone that he knew from his past? Because he doesn't really seem to know it. And like he doesn't even know his history with this person, um, and so, like to me, everything is called into question. And even uh, Jong Su's past. There's a moment right at the heart of the film where we find about the greenhouses, and we Jong Su goes to sleep, and he has this dream of himself as a child burning a, a greenhouse, and it's like this intermingling of his own past burning his mother's clothes Mm -hmm. with this new imagery that he's incorporating. And like, I I just nothing, you can't take anything as a certainty in the film. Mm -hmm. And, and to me that like opens it up for endless possibilities, which makes it all the more interesting. Like I, I I got so far down the rabbit hole with this thing over the past few days (laughs) that I'm like, Oh, like, you know, Ben and, and, and Jong Su are the same guy. Like, you know, they go off to Africa and come back with this more primal, you know, character. And at the end of the film, when he's burning his car, he gets naked and he's returning to nature and killing that part of himself. And I feel, if you know, this were you an American down... movie, I feel like that it would be some sort of weird twist like that rather sure, than just sure. letting this be. Yeah, I'm not saying that it is that, I'm, uh, but it got me thinking like, oh, that's the exciting <laughs> thing about this movie. I think about this in like a movie like last year's mother where mm-hmm. like great art can operate both on like a surface level where you're kind of enjoying it, but it also is kind of endlessly interpretable mm-hmm. um, and accessible. And, and, and that's what this film was for to me. I know it's a longer answer than you were like, asking <laughs> to good. like a simpler question, but like, that's the journey of what elevated this film for me to something. I, I wish I had seen this last year. I know I came on your show to rave about spider verse, but this is like now my new, like, Oh, I'm really sad I missed it last year, too. Yeah, it, it was just <laughs> it came in a rough time man. the middle of award season. Uh, I love that these specifics are so open in this movie, but really it is the broader like character imagery and themes here that I think are really interesting. Like this is a this is a movie that kind of just boils down toxic masculinity to these two characters, even our lead character who, at you know, before Hamy disappears, he calls her a whore. You know, yeah. he says this is the sort of thing a whore does, and then she disappears. Um, he's not a nice guy. You know, he's he's the one we're seeing. He's the point of view we're seeing. Uh, he seems like a pretty meek guy, but at, at the end of the day, it's not like he was nice to her. She remembers him saying how you know how ugly he she was uh, as a child. Like he I mean, crossed the street just to tell that to her. Like there's a lot of that, and this movie really is about like his. First of all, like he has you know he has a fling with her. And she goes off to Africa. 
it's not like they're uh, boyfriend and girlfriend or anything. And he sees Ben and he's like both threatened and confused by Ben. And this movie is all about the breakdown of that, that kind of back and forth. Like Ben does not take this guy seriously. I think that's also why he just shows up at the end. He's like, what are you going to do kid? Like you're a farm boy. You have one cow. You can't do anything to me. It, um, it reminded me yeah. of the dynamic between Matt Damon's uh, Ripley character and the talented Mr. Ripley and oh, yeah. Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Like yep. who's uh uh what's his name in that movie? Um, I don't remember Frankie or something. It was something <laughs> like that. Um, uh, but that basically you have this guy who's like pretending to be uh very rich and kind of in this world, and he's just really not mm-hmm. pulling it off. And there's one guy who knows exactly Freddie. Freddie well, Mi- except Miles. Uh, except like uh, in this movie, Stephen Young is also pulling it off. He's both Frankie and you know Ripley, like, or not Ripley, but uh, the the Jude Law character, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, Dickie. Yeah. Um, to, to your point, Devendra, like, there is one murder that we see in this movie, and it is a murder committed by Jong-Su, and that's, like, about as much as I'm willing to commit to, is, like, that's the murder we see. That's the act of violence that is actually mm. concrete. And he'll probably be punished for it like his father was. Yeah. Well, yeah, but but I think what Dan is saying is, like, that's the only thing we can quote-unquote... Well, first yeah. of all, there's that, there's that scene when he's writing his his book on a computer mm-hmm. in Hamie's apartment. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait, so is all this like a book from this point forward? Or like, it wasn't clear to me what is in the reality of the film, what's not. But then, yeah, but to Dan's point, like the, the only one thing we see is that we know for sure is that if we assume that it's not a book that Jung Su's writing yeah. is that Jung Su murdered Ben. Um, and that was a beautiful scene. It takes place basically in one shot. And it's really powerful moment, like especially at the end. I don't know if you guys noticed, but like Ben embraces uh, Jong Su at the end, like when he's he's definitely yeah. dead. Like Ben, like kind of pulls yeah. Jong Su. Like in you got close. me, bro. You got me. Yeah, it's yeah. just kind of he's kind of like acknowledging that, like yeah, he's, he's right. right the he's like, yep, you got me. You got me. You know. Um, and uh, really, really intense, intense sequence. Um, uh, so, so, can I speak to that embrace a little bit? Yeah. I'm 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 curious about this because like I really think that these two make a whole together. They're both fill out each other's needs. You know, Ben has no complicated backstory. He's just kind of always been there. We get no details about him. Whereas Jong Su is this like intensely rich character. Uh, They're they're constantly operating in mirrors, and in that one moment, they're they're brought together. I mean, whether it's through an act of violence or what or or what have you, like uh, there's just something there to these two characters and how they are uh, both need each other in in some way. I mean, I'm so tickled by the merging of their memories uh, in that one dream sequence, and I'm curious what your guys' interpretation was of that. You know, and, and the fact that you know Ben seems so interested in Jong Su beyond Hey Me's involvement—that he's reading Faulkner and 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 inviting and and seeking him out—I'm uh, curious about your interpretations of all this. I agree that they are kind of like different sides of the same coin. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. as Devendra you pointed out, they're kind of like uh, they they reflect different elements of toxic masculinity in a way, assuming that Ben is actually a killer. Um, but. For for the longest time while watching the film, I thought they were the same person and that we were going to be mm-hmm. revealed that it was like a book that he was writing and Tyler Durden style, like they're the same person. And there is some evidence for that. For instance, there's a scene when Jong-Soo creeps up behind Ben uh, standing by a lake. 
And then he's just like, he stands up and then we just never yeah. see what happens after that. Right. Yeah. And then the next, it cuts to Jung Soo waking up and he's super tired. And it's like, well, what, what happened there? Cause it seems like it was pretty important. Right. Um, so to me, I think, I, I don't know that they, I, I don't think they are literally the same person in the, in the room. No, I don't either. Right? I don't either. But I think, just... I think they do represent kind of different sides of the same, mm-hmm. uh, of like what a modern you know man is in this environment, mm-hmm. with all the benefits and extreme violent downsides that that entails. Yeah. Um, and both, like even that? even if Ben is not like even if you don't think he's a killer, the, plenty of what he does I think is kind of just kind of shitty and maybe kind of gross. Like the way he kind of basically starts grooming these girls from a lower ca- class. Uh, and basically is the way he shows him off to his friends, I don't think is very nice. Like there's always something like subtly condescending about every single thing he does and just kind of shitty about it. Uh, whereas, uh, Jung Soo is, I think more thinking like, Oh, this, you know, I slept with this girl and like, I have a, I have a certain, uh, stake in her, I guess, like a a certain ownership in her and how dare this guy kind of do this. Uh, how dare this guy kind of creep in and how dare she, uh, confuse me like this. There, there's a lot going on. Here. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot to what you just said, Devendra. Um, and yeah, I think uh, yeah. that's that's what I have to say on that topic. Any? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I, I do want to say I think I actually have a lot more sympathy for this idea that he helps the like the girls uh, become different people than. Uh, than you, Divindra. Like, I think that theory is actually pretty valid. If you, if you don't, if you don't read any into anything else he does in the movie, sure. But yeah, the, I think the movie drops enough hints that even if he's not a killer, I don't think it's essentially helpful or anything. Well, so for instance, like he, the way she tells stories, she tells all these stories that are like, um, that we don't know if they're true or not. The story with the well, right? Uh, the story of him, mm-hmm. uh, Jung Soo calling her ugly, which like he doesn't seem to remember. Um, and a, a few, like this, this trip to Africa, the guy, the guy's theory on Reddit was basically that mm-hmm. she didn't even go to Africa, right? That she was like training with this guy, Steve Yoon, to like become <laughs> someone else. Uh, and like she just go, goes, this, this would also explain why like, um, this like really crazy story about the thing being held hostage and all that stuff. And, uh, I'm I mean, saying, if you're if you're going, uh, where'd she go? Nairobi? Or yeah, Kenya? I'm not, like, I'm not saying that's not possible yeah. to happen. I'm just saying that like that the movie gives us nothing to support that. That's the thing. Like I, I'm all for crazy, wild interpretations of a lot of movies, but you at least got to base it on like give me something in the movie that could kind of uh, you know support that idea. Well, I think the biggest basically. the here 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 is the support of that theory, Devendra is. Uh, when he says like, I like, what, what do you do for a living? Oh, hard to explain. I like to play, you know, it's like, okay, well that's, that's a very plausible way that could be interpreted. Um, uh, and also that, you know, that he brings the girls around, um, to the thing. Like, and it, I still think it would be like less likely for him to do that if he was a serial killer. Um, and, uh, the makeup kit, right? Like why would he have a makeup kit? You know, like, um, uh, maybe he's just, it's just his hobby to do makeup to, to girls, but like, uh, kind of weird. It's another form of control too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying this. Look, I am. Yeah. 
I ultimately think the serial killer solution is the correct one. Um, <laughs> but I just think like there's enough there that you, you can doubt. Like that's what's so great about this movie is you can doubt everything. Is it, was that really Boyle the cat? You, you don't know. Probably you never see a photo of him. You never you, even see him cats, before. Cats never respond to anything. Occasionally, that's their right. Names. Like that's the thing. Why, why would cat, a cat respond to his or her name? That doesn't make any sense. Well, no, um, I'm saying. You can't. It's hard to call a cat. That's right. If you say their name, that is actually a better chance that they get you. Like that's that's a, one of those bits mm. where it's like, okay, this seems to be the cat, and we My saw cats cat... run to me all the time. Yeah. Right. Well, they know you, right? Well, I mean, when I say called. their name, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also at the beginning too, like when when all the cat stuff was there, there was cat poop in the litter. But then you never the saw the cat before from. that point. That's what's you so never awesome. Saw the cat. That's what's How awesome. That is you never saw it. Hide in a four foot by four foot apartment. Right. Cats will find a was way. Was the cat actually even there at all? Right. That's the question. There was cat right? poop in the litter. So it's like, uh, well, you're going to great lengths to fake this. Uh, that could be a but thing. But that's what too. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Maybe she's faking everything, you know? And, uh, yeah. but, but of course, there's a lot of uh, counter evidence to that, too. Like the fact that the, the, the idea that she's reinventing herself because the suitcase, the pink suitcase, is still there in the apartment. Um, and so why would that be there if she's going to go uh, go away and restart her life, right? But um, did we ever see that door open in the background before? Right. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Hey, can I ask you guys one more detail? I really like this scene, but I have no idea how to interpret it. This scene where he reconnects with his mother and she, you know, seems to be implying that she is um, like turning tricks of, of some kind. Um, well, or, it's more like she seems very like um, financially like in a, a bad situation. I don't know. She seems like a rich woman who's also very like not. I, I think not concerned with anything. She's like a very rich and aloof person, you know, like she's not concerned with him at all, even though they're meeting for the first time in what, 15 years. Um, that seems like a weird meeting too. like it comes at a very opportune time. But I also like how he, you know. He's disappointed in this, but he's using that moment to get more clues for the search or get more answers for his search. Right. I, I don't know. I thought she talked about her money troubles, like that there were people trying to find her for money reasons, which mm. which I think was a like the fact that she's dressed up super nice and has like a nice yeah. iPhone and a case is like an indication of how people try to project one image. But in reality, right. they're a different thing. You know, that, that, that was my yeah. take on that scene. Um, but it was it was a bizarre scene. Right. It's not mm -hmm. how you'd expect a you know, reunion after 16 years of no contact to take place. Um, well, right. She's looking at her phone the whole time. Right. Like, yeah. It, just doesn't, it makes no sense. Right. Like, it's just like, why? I don't believe that that would play out that way. Um, well, I but, mean, it could. I have, I've known people who that experience has definitely happened. Like, it's yeah. definitely a believable thing. And also that ties into, like, you know, the the abandonment of his mother also ties into, like, how he would feel after he connects with this one random girl and maybe is, you know, a little broken when she comes back with somebody else and kind of abandons him in a way. I feel like I'm going to watch this film a hundred times oh, just yeah. to, like, try to figure out or get fixated on some detail each time. I, like the last time I felt this way about a movie is like Zodiac, where I felt like the more I watch this movie, the more I'm going to be able to figure out who the Zodiac killer actually is. And like, this is one of those kind of things. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's great. It's a great mystery. Also like shout out to all the lead performances. Uh, the girl who plays, Hey me, this is her first movie. This is her first on-screen credit. That's insane. I think she does a great job of like, it's, her performance almost feels like manic pixie dream girl type thing, 
But there's that one scene, her dance in the sunset where, you know, she's dancing naked for herself, but also, you know, in view of both of these guys. There is so much going on there. And I think she brings a lot to that performance. And also, Stephen Yoon, like a guy, you know, we mostly know for Walking Dead. He's shown up in a couple of movies um, and most recently also in uh, what was it? Sorry to bother you. And I love seeing him in things, but this is a completely next level performance. Like this is him doing um, the rich guy in old boy, basically like yeah. very on the same level for me. And uh, the lead guy too. Um, I know he's, he's a very famous actor. Like he's actually, he is very dressed down in this movie because I see photos of him in other things and he's like a very proper handsome dude. So uh, shout out to him for playing like a, I guess a more, uh, simplistic dude, uh, less handsome guy than he actually is. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's agreed. a very primitive thing about him. You yeah, know, he's, yeah, he's very, very like. Basic. There's something about it the way he holds his mouth that feels very uh, like infantile in, in yeah. a way, and it, and it, it got me thinking a lot about like kind of Oedipus and reading mm. that into this story in some way. Mm. They're mm. just like he's just not worldly as like the rich city people are. Uh, also, I want to say shout out to the uh, slow chase in his giant truck behind <laughs> Ben's Ferrari. I don't, that's clearly Ben is not a dumb guy. Like clearly he, he's tracking this one giant old truck that seems to be following him everywhere. It's like, okay, I think he was onto a lot of what was happening there. Uh, just kind of hilarious that Jung Su thinks he can follow Ben very closely too, like not employing any of the like uh, known things you would do in a movie. Like uh, let's try to say three car lengths behind or something. Yeah. He's just like right up there on the guy. Assuming he would not notice his ugly old truck behind him all the time. You gotta love stealth truck. Gotta love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there's a moment in Velvet Buzzsaw when Jake Gyllenhaal is looking at art and he describes it as mesmeric, which I don't even know if that's a word, but that is definitely the word that came to mind when I was watching the Hamey dance sequence in the sunset. Mm -hmm. uh, just an incredible sequence that is uh, filmed mostly in one long take and it's just like it is a uh, is this beautiful idea of this woman longing for more in her life right than than she currently has right and it's beautiful and tragic uh, and depending on what you think happens to her at the end of the film extremely tragic um, but who knows maybe she just restarted her life somewhere Devendra we don't yeah we don't yes. know that, so, that is a possibility, sure. <laughs> Dan, you want to have the last word on this? Any uh, closing thoughts on burning? Uh, I hope people listen to this after seeing the film. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't stress that enough. Um, I, I'm just, I'm going to be watching this thing for the next five years. I, I think we talked about a lot of the stuff I wanted to discuss without taking us down a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, w well. First of all, it's hard to spoil it because we literally don't know what happened. Um, yes. But also, what's the whole other rabbit? Just, uh, we we might we probably don't have time for it. But what is the other rabbit hole that you had in mind? Oh, I mean, I just like talking about like the, the, uh, his family and father, and 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 I have this whole thing about Ben be, being like his new father figure, and mm. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of things to go into here. None of it's fully formed because it's so hard to grab onto any of it. Um, I'm curious about the nudity in the film and how it's used and, and, and utilized. I'm curious about, uh, you know, Jong Su looking at this image of light on the wall while he's, uh, you know, having sex and, and what that implies. There's so much going on that 
we could talk about this for the rest of our lives and never really have a true grasp on it. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of our After Dark. Thanks for listening. Dan, where can people find more of your work? Yeah, you can uh, listen to my podcast, The Amazing Spider Talk. It's all about Spider-Man and the history of the character and you know, past, present, future. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk and read my writing in The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks for joining us, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Jessie Ware. I'm Lenny. And we're from the Table Manners podcast. And this week, we're sponsored by Uniqlo. I'd really like to bring to your attention Uniqlo Airism. So it's a base layer that releases heat and moisture to keep you feeling cool. So Airism fabric includes antimicrobial and deodorizing features to help you stay feeling fresh. And Airism so lightweight and it's really, really super smooth, which stays invisible beneath the clothes. So you can wear this layer and still be really cool. And it's soft. It's really it's soft. soft. Gorgeous. So discover Airism now in Uniqlo stores and online at uniqlo.com.